back to Let the Stone Speak. I'm Brent Nachtigal, the host of the program here in Jerusalem, Israel. You might have noticed we haven't put out a podcast uh, for a while. This is uh, due to the um, Sukkot and then what came after that with the October 7 massacre of, of so many Israelis. And then in the aftermath of that, we kind of uh, took a while to get back going here in, in Jerusalem with our archaeological endeavors. But we are pushing forward with them. Uh, our, one of our archaeological mentors, the late Dr. Elat Mazar, called the biblical history of, of Israel the soul of the nation. And so this way and continuing the study of ancient history and these excavations and also documenting it and publishing it both in a scientific way and also in a more popular way such as this podcast, it really does contribute to the soul of the nation of Israel. And so we are going to push ahead uh, with this work in collaboration with other uh, institutions, the Antiquities Authority, Hebrew University, and even with this interview that I did actually uh, before the Sukkot break with uh, Tel Aviv University's Professor Erez Ben Yosef. In this interview I did about oh, a few weeks ago, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it really discusses some critical discoveries that have been made in the south of Israel in the area of Timna. Uh, Professor Ben Yosef is the director of the excavations down there. It's just this massive copper mining and smelting uh, location that dates back millennia. And really the, the subject and the focus of this interview with him um, is mainly from this time period of King David and King Solomon, going back to around 1000 BCE. As I said, it's one of my favorite uh, interviews I've done so far, just because it's incredibly interesting and how cutting edge this the science is coming together uh, with a narrative as well of discovery of the site a long time ago and then conf confirmation of the site's peak period of use belonging to this time period of David and Solomon and then what the Bible says about this period as well. So please do enjoy this uh, interview. I even have uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Christopher Reams, cuts in at the end with a question for Erez as well. A really insightful question and great answer. So make sure you really do uh, watch through to the end of, of this interview. If you like what you see today and you want to make sure you don't miss any of our great content from the Armstrong Institute, please do like and subscribe uh, to this, uh, this video and also the channel to make sure you don't miss anything. But for now, thank you very much to Professor Ben Yosef for taking the interview with us. And here he is uh, discussing the massive copper mining facilities down in Timna. Professor Erez Ben Yosef, thanks very much for coming on our show. Thank you for inviting me. So we're here in Tel Aviv University, uh, where you have conducted most of your research in the field. It's a little bit further away from here and going down into the Arava Valley. Um, what initially piqued your interest of heading you know, that direction for your field of, in your field of research? Uh, I think uh, one of the reasons is my background. I studied uh, geology as well as archaeology as an undergrad and also my master thesis in, in the earth sciences. Mm -hmm. So when I thought about research topic for my PhD, I was looking for something that can combine both fields and working in the mines or on the mines in the south was perfect for this uh, direction. So eventually I chose to uh, pursue a PhD at UCSD, California. Mm -hmm. yep. I was part of the expedition to the mines in Jordan right. uh, of Tom Levy and Muhammad Najjar. This was my PhD about uh, the ancient technology of copper production. And this was the beginning of my research in the south. Then when I came to Tel Aviv, I started my own project in the Timna Valley. So that was the main reason. So this initial research you did in, in Jordan, um, it was still in, obviously heavily involved in the copper production industry um, and you worked alongside uh, Thomas Levy uh, at Kibret and Nahas, is that correct? This was the main site. It was the main site but other sites in the area as well. Yeah. And then your partnership with him, you just kind of went solo heading to Timna um, in 2009, was that correct? Yeah. 2009, I, I, I was doing like a probe in one of the sites in, in Timna Valley. Mm -hmm. It's a huge area with many sites. Mm -hmm. And we went to a site that was excavated before, 
and it was published as a New Kingdom Egyptian smelting site. And my question was, my PhD was concentrated on the ancient technology. Uh, copper production is uh, the most sophisticated technology of ancient times, and my PhD was about how they made copper, a new material from uh, green stones. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to this site to compare the Egyptian technology to what we had in Fainan, that we know it's Iron Age. Mm -hmm. This was one of the reasons why we went there. And we did a small probe, as you said, in 2009, expecting to find an Egyptian smelting site. And the difference was, from the previous excavation, that we had the budget for radiocarbon dating. And when all the dates came back from Oxford, not a single one of them was from the New Kingdom period. All of them came from elite, uh, it showed us that the activity there was from the 11th, 10th centuries BCE. Uh, so again, the period of King David and Solomon in Jerusalem. Uh, so that's where we understood that there is a confusion with the chronology of Timna. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a small probe and then in 2012 after I moved back to Tel Aviv, to Israel, and started uh, teaching here. Uh, that's when uh, the big project started. Uh, based on our understanding that there is a lot to do, especially with the chronology, right. and the question who was there, and what uh, exactly was uh, done, and if it is connected to Jerusalem or not. Right. So. This was kind of a surprise to you, as you said. You're you're looking, you're digging a New Kingdom site, and then it comes back, uh, 10th century or in there, you know, 11th, 11th to 9th century. Um, I'm I'm just interested and fascinated by that because you come from a you come from a hard sciences or metallurgy interest. It's kind of outside the scope of biblical uh, biblical history or the biblical narrative. It's kind of separate, and yet. You found yourself then, because of these dates, that you're. S hang on a second. I'm kind of now. I'm part of this debate in, in many ways. Part of this debate, and it's been, I don't know, 15 years that I'm excavating and doing research on the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. uh, so although I'm coming from uh, the perspective of ancient technologies and also the archaeological sciences, of course, that there is no way but to be part of the debate about the historicity of the Bible, about the because we always ask, even if you come with uh, this perspective of technology and the archaeological sciences, you always ask questions about the people behind the finds and the people uh, who were there, what part of what societies. And I think we have good answers for some of these questions. Uh, but it all started with um, trying to understand the technology in this period uh, of copper production. Right. Um, the dates came back completely different than what we uh, expected. And uh, the picture, this was the dramatic change in our understanding of the South. Right. Uh, when I started, it was considered to be an Egyptian mine with uh, the, <coughs> the big empire responsible for all of this activity. And now we know that this was only a minor part of a much bigger production industry that was actually done by the independent tribes of the south, which we see as part of the Edomite kingdom, the mm -hmm. kingdom of Edom. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, every year we add some more uh, information about this kingdom, its relations relations with Judah, its relations right. with Philistia, and the finds are fascinating. Uh, of course, they are also related to the technology. We continue right. to ask technological right. questions. Uh, and this is a part of what we do. So in 2019, you published a, a paper. Uh, it was in, it was called Ancient Technology and Punctuated Change: Detecting the Emergence of the Edomite Kingdom in the Southern Levant. I thought this was fascinating because your experience up in uh, Fainan, and then you could combine that with what you found uh, in Timna. And now you've got the, the ability to make a, 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 a comparison between the two over a large geographic area, and you can determine, I guess from this paper, the technological advances, when they happened, um, and what, what was kind of the main thrust behind uh, this paper, or what did you find? Well, first, there was a, the, the striking observation was that 
every little uh, advancement in the technology in the technology of copper production was done simultaneously in mm -hmm. both regions. Um, so how far? What's the distance between the two? More than 100 kilometers okay. apart, so they are quite far away from each other. Finan is about 50 kilometers south of the Dead Sea. Okay. And Timna is very close to the Gulf of Elat, uh, 20 kilometers north of the Gulf of Elat. So there's a huge area of desert between these regions. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the main observation was that the, the technology, again, it's a sophisticated technology. There is a lot of uh, variables and things that were got into it, from the preparation of charcoal and the, mine, uh, the mining of ore. And in this stage, they also mined what we call flux, another type of mineral that they knew to, that how to mix it with the copper ore in order to make the process more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of uh, things that <coughs> are part of this industry and the changes through time, there was, the, these people were striving for uh, more efficient technology. Mm -hmm. Like we have today R&D, research and development team, they have also had such people that were devoting their time to understand, to improve the technology. And every little step forward was at the same time in both regions, that which tells us that uh, there was some kind of a um, coordinating system, mm -hmm. which is another evidence that an, a, a kingdom was there at that time period. Because some of my colleagues claim that you know there was some tribes there, some tribes here, some opportunistic uh, production, but the technological observations are uh, very important to, uh, to, to for, for, for claiming that it was not uh, disconnected. So uh, this was the paper in 2019. Uh, it's all there, and um, the connection between technological development, the people behind the technology, and social processes is quite clear, uh, and uh, I think it reflects the the processes in this ancient kingdom of Edom. So, well, who's to say that, you know, they didn't share the technology, two separate people didn't share the technology with them, why does it indicate a, a single polity um, between the north and the south? I mean, you know, we have pottery styles, they, they travel out eventually and they catch on and everyone's doing the same thing in, in a general area. It's right. not, but, so why is, why does because simultaneous um, Meaning that they were part of the same society, yeah. because uh, me metallurgy is very different than pottery. Again, it was the high tech of the time. Okay. Uh, some of the components were like a, a guarded secret. Okay. Uh, so it's a different level of technology, and if it was a guarded secret of uh, elite of metal workers, and it was. Uh, you know, you see the developments in the same in, the, in both regions. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it means that they share the information. They did not compete with each other. And there are other claims along this line. Uh, for example, that in that scale of industry, it won't. This scale won't be sustainable if they were fighting or competing okay. with each other. So there's a time of peace or a relative peace between the two. Yeah. What we see is a, in, in, in a situation is, and the important observation also is that they were still nomadic. So what we see in the south is that in a certain point there was a coalition of tribes mm -hmm. that was responsible for improving the metal industry, for uh, having uh, the trade protected and not disrupted. And uh, we see that in the, in the success of all of this system this in itself is evidence that they w there was some uh, coordination and, uh, and kind of a, an umbrella mm -hmm. that uh, we can see as an early kingdom. So you, you're mentioning that this is a nomadic kingdom. Is this based on the fact that you, or if it is a fact that you have a lack of buildings uh, associated with it uh, at the sites, the mining sites. Um, if you do have buildings, what are the main periods of construction at the site? Yeah, the the basic observation is that we don't have any settled sites in Timna or in Fainan. We have very few buildings, mm -hmm. probably of the elite or something like that. But we definitely don't. We just don't have. 
buildings to accommodate all of the workers and uh, miners in the region and uh, not to mention the population that were probably uh, settled around the oasis but in tents mm -hmm. so I think there is no argument about this society being nomadic mm -hmm. uh, there are other uh, debates about uh, this observation but uh, this is a major change in our uh, perception of this nomadic phase of the local kingdoms because mm -hmm. most scholars accept the nomadic origin of ancient Israel right. and also Edom, Moab, Ammon these little kingdoms emerged from a nomadic background but the new thing here is that the common assumption that they could have created kingdoms only after complete sedentarization uh, happened only after everybody settled down we challenge this assumption mm -hmm. and the observation from the south is that even during this phase of still being nomadic they could have been very strong they could have coordinated between uh, tribes of a vast region to create something very successful and this is a major change in biblical archaeology and also in biblical scholarship because um, because of this fundamental assumption that only settled society can create kingdoms uh, in case you don't find any permanent settlements you can say that there was nothing in the region right. uh, so the biblical description of the Midianites for example right you read in the book of Judges that uh, Gideon defeated the Midianites uh, that had kings mm -hmm. uh, in the 11th century BC but there is nothing settled nothing no permanent settlements in Midian during this period so scholars dismiss the historicity of this verse but in the minute you understand that the reference for kings for Melachim and the reference for Mamlacha for kingdoms does not necessarily mean a settled society then uh, it becomes much more interesting and the archaeology cannot provide the answers that scholars claim it can right see it's it's really a methodological issue do you feel like this is I mean, it, you, this idea of an architectural bias that you've brought out to determine whether a kingdom was this size or that size, or um, makes it does make sense, definitely in my mind, for the south, this area that you're talking about. How? What is the limit? Do you think, in your mind, of projecting your uh, this idea yeah. of Edom into the kingdom of the high, the Highland kingdoms, Philistine kingdoms, or? I think it's relevant. It's very relevant to the kingdom uh, in the highlands in, of, of ancient Israel, especially if you accept the nomadic background of this of this kingdom. <coughs> uh, even more, like the, the the situation in the south is the exception that proves the rule, because the only reason for us to know that there was a nomadic kingdom there is their engagement in copper production, mm -hmm. so they became visible to us. Right. So we have the thousands of mines and a very large scale industry. Uh, you know, before we came to Timnai, everybody accepted that only an empire can be behind this major project. And now we say most of what was going on there happened after the Egyptians left the region. Right. So you cannot, you know, belittle the, the power of this uh, nomadic kingdom of Edom. It was mm -hmm. a strong kingdom in the south. Right. But the important thing to remember is that we know about them only because they engaged in copper production. And the situation there in the highlands is different. We just can't see them. We don't see their tents. We sometimes in Adam's Altal survey they found, they found like a tent remain here and there, but it doesn't tell you the entire story because from some tent remains you cannot reconstruct the structure of the society or anything right. like that. Uh, so if in the south the Edomites could have created something substantial, something uh, important for the history of the region, definitely in the central uh, country a similar process could have happened and probably did happen and if you go back to the biblical narrative it's all about nomads creating a, a, a polity and, and another thing this would probably be earlier I would say than the at least from the biblical record you're, you're this is an earlier uh, phenomenon than what would typically I would say exist in the south I think that, the, that when they went through this, this change in the, in the hill country, they went to, through the sanitization process a little bit more fast than mm. what we see in Edom. Edom, the first permanent settlements that we see are only in the late 
eight centuries. Mm -hmm. So for quite a few centuries they were still nomadic. In the hill country it was a bit faster, but still much slower than archaeologists usually assume. Mm -hmm. Uh, and actually, the common assumption is that as soon as you see this little island, one little uh, hamlets in the hill country, you can see all the population. But this is completely wrong. Right. It doesn't make a lot of sense because it takes a lot of time. It's a gradual change. And there is a lot of Western biases when we look at this change because as Western people, we think that the nomad, the lowly nomad, would run into a built house as soon as they can do that. Right. But it's not true. It takes a long process of change, a cultural change, a mental change, a, a, a things that will take generations. And a, I believe that this was the situation in the hill country. I think first that we have archaeological evidence for that, because if you count the number of people based on the structures that you can see, right. meaning the sedentary right. population, there is an, 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 an amazing um, population growth between the, let's say, the 10th century to the 8th century, to the early 8th century, before mm -hmm. the Assyrian conquest. That cannot be explained by a demographic growth, like a regular natural growth, uh, and people were struggling with that. Mm -hmm. But the answer is very simple. There were always a lot of people there that are invisible to us, the archaeologists, and they became more and more settled through time. And more interestingly, maybe, is that when you go back to the text, you see that there is a lot of reference, references to tents, right. to Ohalim, mm -hmm. all the way to the 10th, 9th centuries. Yeah, uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam's famous reprisal yeah, to your tents of Israel. Exactly, and there are many others. Mm -hmm. And scholars argue that this has to be figurative. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of our assumption, based on nothing, that only settled society can be part of this amazing kingdom. But this is our assumption. If you read the text, as it is, it's clear that together with the settled people of the Israelites, there were still people dwelling in tents, mm -hmm. being part of the same society. Uh, the Bible even bothered to remind us that one uh, tribe, the, the Pnei Rechav, the sons of Rechav, mm -hmm. the Rechabites, mm -hmm. continued to live in tents all the way to the destruction of the century. Yes. So, the picture is com more complicated, as as, and as soon as you understand that the nomads could have had a power, right. political power, like we see in the South, the whole yeah, picture I, changes. I definitely think there's some value to what you're saying to kind of remove the I, the concept, our, our modern concept of what a nomad is, I suppose. People might hear that term and they think we're backward people. Exactly. But you're saying that the discoveries that you found, particularly at Timna, uh, the material culture that remained, even though the the buildings weren't there, maybe they're intense, but what they were doing shows a level of sophistication and development that was Absolutely. incredible. And you, you say in your paper and your other papers that this really did surge around this 11th, 10th, 9th century uh, uh, of peak copper production from these mines, but then you also have other elements that you're finding in the slag heaps and elsewhere that indicate the sophistication. Maybe you can talk about some of the other things outside the copper. Uh, that you're finding. Well. Uh, absolutely. We are very lucky in Timna because uh, the dry climate <coughs> uh, preserved the organic materials. Mm -hmm. We have the amazing, an amazing collection of textiles and leather and uh, food remains. Uh, things that even if you continue to excavate in Jerusalem and other right. 200 years you won't find. Yes. So we have a window into this aspect of the society that you usually don't get. And uh, this was quite incredible, uh, the textiles in particular, when we first discovered some beautiful pieces with uh, sophisticated uh, weaving technique. Right. I um, consulted with uh, an expert on ancient textiles, Dr. Orich Amir, and she mm -hmm. couldn't believe it's so old, it's Iron Age. She, ha she told me it has to be like a, an important person in the Roman era. Right. But luckily, of course, you can date directly right. the organic material. Right. So we could date these textiles directly to the 11th and 10th centuries BCE. Mm -hmm. Definitely uh, evidence for an elite, elite uh, uh, people at the site, deep in the desert. And recently, uh, this uh, publication of ours, um, based on the work of Dr. Nama Sukeni, mm -hmm. uh, that some of the fragments, she analyzed them to see what the dyes are made of, and she was able to show that they were made of true purple. Mm -hmm. 
uh, the Argaman of the Bible, right. which is, was the most expensive color in antiquity. And uh, in the Bible, it is the color of priests. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the Midianites, right, and judges, so Kiteon, what was the spoil he took from the kings of Midian? So gold and other things, but an um, important object was the purple garments of the kings themselves. Mm -hmm. And we have some fragments, physical fragments of textiles dyed with purple, with true purple, made of sea snails from the Mediterranean right. inside of these uh, waste, waste piles of the, of the industrial waste. So if people are uh, questioning the, 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 this, uh, uh, this idea of a nomadic king, a nomadic kingdom, they should um, consider uh, the ability of this king and the elite to manifest their status and power by this kind of stuff. Right. Purple garments, a big tent, a large amount of cattle and hair and, and, and goats and sheep. They, they had other means. It doesn't necessarily have to be always manifested by monumental buildings. And, and we find this among the debris in England. One thing that's really interesting, um, and you just kind of touched on it there, I mean, you, you're talking about an Edomite polity down here, the Edomite people that are running the tim, the sorry, the copper mines. Um, you do find, like, if we go back to the argument, um, and it come, comes from a Murex snail, they've, they've been publishing a lot about Telmachik Mona lately, right. um, up by Haifa, um, to show that this was the location of a major uh, dye production area. Um, and your dye from Timna, which is 20 kilometers from the Gulf of Aqaba, where they also had murex snails, where they could have produced it there or not. Am I wrong? Is there only one dye? Uh, they, they are endemic to the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so you don't have them in the Red Sea? We don't have them in the Red Sea, and we don't also have uh, linen, and uh, wool is actually not a very good place to to, to raise sheep. Mm. Timna is extremely inhospitable. It's not like uh, the Jutian desert that you have like sheep and goat. Timna is an extreme desert and this is why we have the preservation of this organic remains. So they got their textiles for trade mm -hmm. in exchange to what they produced, which is copper, which was very important at that time. Uh, we cannot exaggerate <coughs> the importance of copper. It's beautiful stuff. Right. Uh, it was used for the temple, right. uh, huge quantities of it. But it also uh, is the source for producing bronze, right. uh, which is a stronger metal that you can uh, create uh, weapons and agricultural tools with it. Mm -hmm. So in exchange for this very uh, valuable commodity, they got uh, purple garments. Mm -hmm. We see that they got like fish, all of our fish assemblage of the elite. Like salted fish? And Exalted fish, and they all came from the Mediterranean Sea, right, not from the Red Sea. Okay. Uh, meaning that they had connections to, towards the north. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is the 10th century you were talking about. This is 10th century, 11th, 10th, 9th century BCE, and we have uh, a huge amount of uh, seeds of all the seven species of uh, the, 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 the land, and uh, also almonds, and right. really cool stuff that are not local that were brought there by a long distance trade and during things that are, you know, very uh, common in Judah, um, like grape seeds and... Um, yeah, definitely no grapevines down there. No grapevines <laughs> down there. And so, so there were connections. So I guess my question then becomes, you know, how you can determine that this was an Edomite run site during the 10th century and not more of a, a kingdom of, of David or Solomon projecting their power to the south, using the Edomites, as the Bible even says, is that a possibility or it's outside your ability to determine who is the one in charge? Well, of course it's a possibility. I'm saying that's a great question. And of course the question that everybody asks is, where did we find King Solomon's mines, right? right? So um, this is a very uh, difficult question to answer. I can tell you that the people operating the mines were the local tribes of the south. The Bible tells us about David going south of the Dead Sea, Valley of Salt, mm -hmm. and uh, conquering the region and putting garrisons all over the land. And since then, Edom is, uh, was subjugated to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But you should remember that the Edom was a brotherly nation to the Israelites. They were twins, right? Jacob and Israel. And uh, most of the time there was kind of peace and uh, good relations. And even during this time of subjugation, we should imagine just a pact or an agreement that 
the Edomites uh, pay tax to Jerusalem. They bring to the city 20 ingots of copper every year. And uh, in return, uh, the Israelites won't disrupt the uh, industry and uh, they will help with the trade and everything like that. This would be enough for the biblical author to depict the subjugation of Edom to Jerusalem. And you cannot expect from me as an archaeologist or from any archaeologist for that matter to be able to detect this uh, agreement between the two nations in the archaeological record. I can tell you that the the, the industry was flourishing during the 10th century, during the days of David and Solomon. It could not have been so successful if there were no... If there were at war, exactly. we continuing that war. Exactly. So there had to be some kind of a organization of the power relations, mm -hmm. and subjugation of the Edomites to Jerusalem uh, can be definitely part of it. Again, it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, villages of Israelites in the south. It doesn't actually make sense. Well, it is. I mean, you, you've got the different nations that are surrounding, according to the biblical text, that you've got Ammon, Moab, uh, Edom, and even the Philistines. These people, when David conquers them, they're not totally destroyed, removed from their land like the Canaanites. They are actually incorporated into the kingdom. They will do trade with them uh, exactly. going forward. And this is through uh, pacts, agreements, and uh, you know, even marriages. There's a lot of a lot of politics and uh, it's very dynamic and uh, exactly we should think about this even uh, you know David's kingdom had this tribal origin so all of this structure the political structure is very different than the empires that we have in mind the, the Egyptian Empire or the Assyrian Empire it's a different political structure uh, which would be much more difficult to detect archaeologically this is why I think that our observations from the south gives more um, it's a credit or more uh, support to the more conservative uh, approach towards the biblical historicity. Mm -hmm. I don't say say that we have any proofs, but definitely what I do you think mean by that we don't have any proof that David controlled uh, Edom. Right. Because for that to, for to get the to do that, that's what exactly what I thought. That to, for archaeologists to do that, it would be impossible. But what you can show based on your excavations is that copper production in this area in the south when there is mass copper copper use and bronze use yes. in the bible um you do see them picking up at exactly the same time so the the atmosphere or the environment for the biblical text it, it does check out. before our project and the uh, americans uh, in jordan uh, people uh, you know you read that story about david going to the south and conquering the edomites and there was nothing there archaeologically mm -hmm. this is because you know, there were nomads, etc., and the dates of the mines were not correct, as we discussed. Right. So they actually were using the uh, lack of evidence, the lack of archaeological evidence, to say that this uh, story about David's conquest is, has to be anachronistic. Right. Because it, we have things in Edom only in the late 8th century, so it has to be written much, much later. But now we have a fantastic background. Not only that people were there, the Edomites, but they also had the control over the most lucrative and important industry of the region. So we have a reason, the best reason for David to go to the south. Right. And we have the source of copper to the, uh, you know, to the temple that Solomon's, uh, has, uh, Solomon built. And it, even the, the Bible talks about the, the objects themselves were cast somewhere in the valley themselves. Right? Yes, in the, in the Jordan Valley. Mm -hmm. This is actually a very interesting point that yeah, and brings us to the story of King David, uh, King Solomon's Mines. Mm -hmm. Because we have this description of using copper and producing tools for the temple in the Jordan Valley from copper, but we don't have any explicit reference for uh, Solomon's Mines. Mines yeah. It's like a catchy title from an adventure book from right. the 19th century. But it's not, there was King Solomon's Mines in the Bible. There is no King Solomon's Mines in the Bible, but he, de he did use a lot of uh, copper. But surprisingly, if you go to the Book of Kings and see all the description of the construction of the temple, uh, the biblical author in that case bother, bothers to tell us uh, where did the materials come from. Mm -hmm. So cedar, my name, Erez, came from Lebanon, right? Mm -hmm. Silver from Tarshish, maybe Spain. Mm -hmm. Gold, remember? Or film. So it does. Copper, nothing. Uh -huh. Silence. Silence. 
it does say that uh, the craftsmen that produce the tools, the, the final product, were Phoenicians. But this is a different story. The origin of the copper, silence. And uh, I, I think that the silence here is not uh, just by chance. I think it's deliberate. Because if you remember the end of the relations between the two nations, mm -hmm. between these it, brothers, didn't it didn't end well. There is a, an agreement among scholars that the Edomites betrayed the Israelites. Uh, we published recently a paper about the destruction of uh, Tel Malchatan, which was done uh, a few decades after the Babylonians left, and right. probably by the Edomites. Right. So the archaeomagnetism. Exactly. This project with the archaeomagnetic dating of mm -hmm. uh, my student, Yoav Vaklin. Mm -hmm. We see that there was something very bad happening then, and it is also reflected in the Bible because we have uh, prophecies against this abhorred nation mm. of the Edomites, about, against uh, uh, these you know, uh, bad people. And coming from the, the, the big perspective of metal in ancient societies, uh, this pure material, this pure material that comes out of the furnace had always uh, some sacred qualities to it. Uh, it's not just because uh, Solomon was using it for the temple. And you cannot associate this sacred material, this almost holy material, with this abhorred, religiously hated Edomites. So I think in later editions, this connection of like this reference to Edomite copper was just deleted, omitted from the text. This is uh, something I wrote as an, as an idea, I cannot prove it, but right. it's very strange that there's no mention right. of where the copper came from. And I think if, that if you understand this separate quality of the, of the material, it makes sense that it won't be associated with the land of this abhorred Edomite. So this is part of the story. And for me, again, I, I, did, I was a student in Jerusalem. I did study with uh, Ami Mazar and Amnon and people from the more uh, conservative school, but uh, I definitely believe that our project and uh, the American one has provided in recent years a fantastic background for the biblical stories that are related to this period in time uh, in, in this region. So I am going to quote Nelson Glick once, it's probably customary to do <laughs> in interviews with you. In the South also. <laughs> This is just one, one quote from him, page 157. Uh, he, he, he came through these areas, I guess, the 30s? Is that when he was mainly through here? Um, and he said this, the mineral deposits in the Wadi Arava had also, this is from his book, Rivers in the Desert, had also been worked in previous ages. In fact, early as the time of Abraham, before that in the Chalcolithic period too. Never, however, were they worked as intensively at, and in as coordinated a fashion as from Solomon's time on. So This is correct. That's correct, but he that's didn't have the proof, you would say, as much as obviously he, what he did. His observations were based 1934. He came to the south. Uh, he spent uh, a day, one night in Timna. Mm -hmm. and this was all based on that. So, but he, he was a great archaeologist, and this, this uh, He says it was surface finds a lot of the exactly, time. Exactly, surface finds, but of course it was before radiocarbon was invented, so his uh, tool was uh, pottery shields, mm -hmm. and he was correct. Uh, the, the most intense production was during Solomon's era. Mm -hmm. Now we know it. This was in the early 20th century. Then in the second half of the 20th century, it was very fashionable to be very critical towards the biblical text. Right. Everywhere. It was together with a, a trend in uh, world archaeology, in which uh, you know they wanted to make archaeology much more scientific and more objective. Uh, and uh, it, it affected also the local archaeologists here and biblical archaeologists as well. And what happened is that in Fenan, in Jordan, uh, the British project on the plateau above Fenan, they um, was able to show that there was no permanent sites there before the late 8th century. So there was nothing right. significant there before the Assyrian impact, the Assyrian Empire. And accordingly, all the mines in the Fenan area were dated to the Assyrian Empire. And it was also a kind of a, a, in fashion to say that only a big empire like the Assyrians can be behind this major project of copper mines in the, in the desert. And in Timna, the opposite happened, like the opposite dating happened. But Rothenberg 
who uh, continued the... Uh, he's another archaeologist that came along later in this... Era. Yeah, he was the photographer of Nestan Lake okay. in his expeditions. And then he started. He decided in 1959 to start his own project. And he uh, started a systematic excavation, uh, excavations and service in Timna. For about 10 years, he accepted the Iron Age dates of the sites. But mm -hmm. then in 69, there was this major discovery of the Egyptian temple. Mm -hmm. And he was so blinded by this discovery. And also, it was fitting to the trend of being critical towards the Bible yeah. and uh, so, so he uh, convinced everybody including Nelson Bleak that it was only the Egyptians that were responsible for the uh, big peak in uh, production during the ten, uh, during, uh, he changed the date to the 13th and uh, 12th centuries BC so you see that Fenan and Timna that were considered by uh, by Gleek to be a single yeah. operation related to the time of King uh, Solomon were separated, were chronologically now dated completely differently. to 13th century. Exactly. Uh, nothing related to this uh, no. period that is much debated in archaeology. In everybody were happy. You know, <laughs> only the Egyptians, only the Assyrians. The local people are capable of nothing. And this, is, this was a situation when I started working in Timna. This was an Egyptian site. Still today, they, uh, I'm working with the park to change the signs, but mm -hmm. still to, the, all the signs were about the Egyptian story. Right. And when we excavated the major site, a huge site that was published in a book by Rothenberg as an Egyptian smelting site, not a single date came from the Egyptian period, and that, this was when we knew that there was a, a, an issue here. Mm -hmm. The Egyptians were there, right. the temple is there, of right. course they came only for copper, uh, right. that's uh, of course part of the story, but it was a minor uh, part. And I see this Egyptian phase of about 160 years, Seti the first or Ramesses the fifth, right. as like the British mandate of the Edomites. Because the local leaders, the local leaders of the local tribes, they, they had like a few generations of uh, experience of how to control people. What are the mechanisms of a kingdom? What, what is the definition of a kingdom or, or, or a state or like a, a polity? Is this a ability to uh, make people work for the elite and to structure the society in a way that will uh, you know, uh, be stable and make uh, everybody uh, coordinate their work and their uh, livelihood together? And they had this experience under the Egyptians. And then one day uh, when the Egyptians didn't come back, right? The Bronze Age collapsed. Right. One day they couldn't, th that's it, no more Egyptian expeditions. This was the time of the local leaders to uh, get the tribes together and to establish a kingdom all over the region that I see as the nomadic kingdom of early Edom and that particular. Well, yeah, and even, even the Bible refer references that, at least in terms of, they've got this this comment that before you know there was kings in Israel, we had kings in Edom. Right, in Genesis 36. Right. And this is also a very interesting uh, description. If you read it carefully, you see that the kings of this early Edomites were ruling from different cities. Mm -hmm. Now, if you talk about biases in interpretation, when you hear city in English, you think about uh, I don't know a city, New York, Manhattan. If you read, uh, if you think about the city as an archaeologist, if you took the introductory class to archaeology, you think about Gordon Child's definition of an archaeological city. It has to be walled and very dense and all of that kind of stuff. But when you go to the ancient Hebrew, and I'm not a, a biblical scholar, but I have a lot of colleagues that I uh, talk to, and you go back to the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew word, ir, Mm -hmm. You see that Ir is used on, not only for a permanent settled city as we know today, it can, use, it can be used also for like a, a gathering of uh, tribes, a tent encampment and things like that. So you see, I, I'm just some, another example of biases that we have when we go to the text. So each of these early Edomite king rules from a different city, which, really, which is really appropriate for a nomadic society with tribes that have different centers other than a settled society with a capital, a world, a palace, which, uh, you know, a capitalism, more permanent, specific location. So it really fits to the fact, to the idea that these early kings were still nomads. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they were not nomads is only ours. Only ours as modern scholars, as Western scholars, whatever. In the Bible, there is no, there is no, uh, nothing that makes it necessary 
to think about these kings as as settled as sedentary people, mm -hmm. and this is uh, I think this is a methodological uh, advancement actually for in our field to right. think more uh, in a more complicated way on the on things. So you come out with this idea. Um, you weren't looking for the 10th century. You weren't looking for. Um, it reminds me actually of Yossi Garfinkel. Goes to Kayafa, right. thinking he's going to find the 8th century, gets the carbon carbon samples back, ends up being the 10th century, and he's like, uh oh, what have I waded into? I have to publish this. What am I going to do? You find yourself in the same situation. I have to, I have to publish. This is yeah. this is what it is. Um, right. How has been the response? Have you felt like everybody welcomes this idea? There was a lot of pushback oh. that maybe not, you're wrong, or? So it's still, it's, it's an ongoing discussion. The first public, major publication about that methodological insight was in 2019, uh, The Architectural Bias in Current Biblical Archaeology. Mm -hmm. And I published it in Vetus Testamento, which is probably the best uh, journal for, uh, for, for, for uh, biblical studies. And it was important for me to publish it in a venue for biblical scholars rather than only an archaeological mm -hmm. venue because uh, we have a huge audience of mostly biblical scholars, historians of the period that are, uh, that are using our in right. uh, insights and conclusions to, uh, you know, to build uh, their own uh, theories and to investigate uh, the text uh, better. So, and, and this audience is less familiar with the challenges of archaeological interpretation. Mm -hmm. it, 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 for them, they get some conclusions of this archaeologist or this archaeologist, and you know it's very hard to uh, really uh, understand the challenges behind these conclusions. Right. And I wanted the, this audience to, to, to be aware of the challenges, especially regarding this pneumatic phase, mm -hmm. and especially regarding this assumption that uh, only this uh, uh, only only settled people can be part of a big kingdom, which is really important because, for example, one of the arguments against a big kingdom of David is counting the number of people in Judah and getting a very small number. Based on the physical buildings. So. These physical building, buildings are only the settled people. And if you agree that there uh, were well, probably tens of thousands of people not in physical building, it changes the interpretation. So I published it then, and I, I, of course I got uh, a lot of uh, uh, pushback, pushbacks, especially from the critical school. Uh, Finkelstein uh, wrote a paper in, in Antigua Oriente criticizing this approach. I um, thank uh, Romina de la Casa, the editor, who invited me immediately to respond mm -hmm. in the same issue of the journal. So I, uh, I put my, my ideas there as well. Uh, but uh, recently Nadav Neyman wrote something and uh, there is also pushbacks from the people working uh, with the British in, the, in Jordan that said that there is no Indomite kingdom before the late 8th century, Piotr Bielkowski and others, they wrote a paper in Basel. I am, um, I will respond to things in that <laughs> time, I have a lot on my table, but the discussion is very interesting in itself. I think uh, it's a major change in our um, in the way we used to think about these ancient societies, and it will take time. I, I think that what we have in the South, this evidence that I'm coming from, it's also the very theoretical philosophy. Yeah, you're, you're, again, you've got, you're coming from the hard sciences, really, and you're, you're, you're bringing that into an archaeological concept to, re, to kind of recreate your history as you would see it based on that. Right. Um, it's not from a biblical text first and then a. Not at all. I was interested in just studying the Egyptian technology of this time, the date, the dates came back, they came back and uh, this was the, the, uh, the, the big deal was when you understand that you didn't excavate uh, the, the, the cities or villages, mm -hmm. that uh, these people were nomads and what we know, all of these things I can tell you about their flourishing industry, about their organization, about the garments of the elite and the kings is just by chance, just because they engaged in copper production. Right. And I, there could have been an Edomite kingdom there, who was, uh, uh, whose economy, economy was based on uh, trade, the Arabian trade already started to happen directly, and 
I couldn't tell you anything about it because they wouldn't leave anything right. physical behind. Right. So if you if you accept the nomadic component of the biblical stories, you also have to accept and understand the complication of the archaeology of this phase uh, and the, the, the way that people cope, coped with this challenge until now was to say that they were not important, they were negligible, there were some Bedouins in the south, so it's, not, it's okay that we don't see them because until they settled down, they didn't do anything significant. But if this is not correct, and I think in the south you see that this is not correct, mm -hmm. we have to uh, now uh, take this component into account as, as, as something that could have had a big effect on the history of the region. Cool. So you're, you said you've got, before we start the interview, that you've got another few seasons. Uh, at, at Timna that you're planning, maybe five or something like that, but it's yeah. more of a surgical excavation where a couple of weeks and and then right. you go back to the lab. So and also you've uh, mentioned the Nelson Glick's description. So Nelson Glick also, another thing that he was correct about, that the story of the South, the mines, is not only about this period, it started very early mm -hmm. in the Calpolitic. Uh, it's not the earliest site of proper production anywhere in the world, like Rottenberg wanted it to be, mm -hmm. but it's very close to the early days of metallurgy anywhere, mm -hmm. uh, and it goes all the way to the early Islamic period. So in the recent seasons, we also invest in investigating some technological aspects of other periods. Right. So we extend the uh, scope of the chronology. And this puts back in context the Iron Age and the Biblical period, and Glick was right, this was the most intense, incomparable to other period, even not to the Roman period, which it, during this time, Finan was a Roman metalla, like a, an imperial production center. Right. It was still smaller than what was happening there in time. So you've got the Roman structures associated. I mean, you would have architecture associated to the Roman period there. It's, it's, yes, we have even churches from the Byzantine Okay, period. so it's meant, but you're saying <coughs> the copper production from an earlier period outstrips that with the big buildings, or in yeah. Um, did you find, or, or are you finding that the, the efficiency of the copper production, so the amount of copper produced slag created, that ratio, or, does that ever go backwards? In the long way, if you talk about the thousands of years, so yeah, sometimes uh, technology was forgotten and they mm -hmm. had to start again. But during this continuous uh, period of production from the Egyptians all the way to the 9th century, it ended in the 9th century mm -hmm. uh, because of environmental issues and also because of uh, the Aramean intervention right. of the region. But during this almost 500 years of continuous production, there was only improvement. Okay. And the, the peak, like the most sophisticated industry during the 9th century, let's say, is not less than what the Roman were, were, were using. So it was really, really high achievement uh, in the smelting sites, but mm -hmm. also in the mines. There yeah. are in Finan mining shafts that are more than 70 meters in depth. And they are part of this early Iron Age story. So it was not something, it was something very uh, sophisticated. and. Uh, and again, the interesting thing is that we don't have an empire behind, we don't even have a settled kingdom behind. We have a kingdom based on confederation of tribes. It's true that nomads throughout history were usually on the margin of the society, uh, you know, but we have cases uh, in which nomads created huge uh, kingdoms and accumulated power the Mongol Empire was the strongest, the biggest empire in the history of the world, and it was based on nomads in the first generations. We have the Nabataeans that were nomads and before they settled down, and still they had kings before they settled down. So maybe these are exceptions, but we have kind of this, uh, we have these um, cases. And if you think about this specific period in the history of the land, this is exactly the period when you should expect these nomads, these marginal tribes, uh, you should expect them to uh, accumulate power and to be very strong because, think about the late Bronze Age, we have the city-states and uh, the vacuum. The, uh, be before the vacuum, the stabilizer, the, the, the Egyptians were here, right? Mm -hmm. Every time there was some Apiru or Shasu making some problems, uh, they wrote a letter to the pharaoh and they sent some soldiers and they were the stabilizing force and now one day they disappeared, they collapsed 
So this was the time for these marginal people to actually accumulate power and to control the city-states. And this is exactly the story of the Bible. And uh, if you take into account also the possibility that it was all related to a crisis in climate, the big Bronze Age collapse was also related to the uh, deteriorating climate, this was also uh, something that gave advantage to nom nomadic people because they can move. Right. If you are permanent, if you are settled and you have the well is dried up, you are in trouble. You, 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 you will be weak and you don't want, know what to do. But if this is the time for the tribes that can move around to be strong and to you know um, exercise their power actually over the settled people. And this is the story. This is the story of David with the Philistines. The Philistines were urbanites, mm -hmm. people, settled people. And this is uh, this is what uh, we see in the basic story of the Bible. That this was the time of the nomadic tribes uh, uh, to be substantial in the history of the region. And maybe it's not intuitive to a modern Western people like us that think about the Bedouins. Even the Bedouins today. You know, they are against central authority and it's like a dangerous place to go, even today in the 21st century. But it doesn't always have to be like that. And I think that we have evidence that in the early Iron Age it was not like that. And it was the time for the local tribes to create this Edomite kingdom, which we have, luckily, we have the evidence because of the copper, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and of course, also ancient Israel, that most, almost all scholars agreed had the nomadic background as well. Cool. Well, thanks very much for your contribution to this, you know, this aspect. understanding, this aspect of it. It certainly does um, change the way we think about, you know, what could be provide evidence for polity, statehood, calling right. what you it's like. Make, it makes our life more complicated and the challenge is Well, great. we're always into more complicated and at least things that you know highlight give a broader picture to the, the situations not everything is just black and white as we would put it into our parameters to decide exactly. these things uh and i think what you can find in a bunch of trash a big slag heap or you're in some ways it, it could outweigh what you would find in a massive city in determining how people anciently lived so thank you very much and thanks for your time uh, thank you very much my pleasure cool well, do you have any questions well, I do have one, but I don't know if you want to put it yeah, out. Yeah, you can just pass so, it. So, you talk about the copper coming out of Tina and all that. Um, has there been much analysis from other sites that shows copper coming, that came from those sites? It's an excellent question. And we, the people who work in the mines, so I've been there for more than 20 years now, because I started my master thesis. We, we just see the quantities of the waste and we know that it was a huge amount, much more than local consumption, not of the Edomites and not even of the ancient Israelites. But it was hard for us to convince the scholarly community that it was something big and not negligible in the South. But then in recent years there are more and more studies on the actual metal artifacts, copper artifacts from other sites that uh, indicate uh, you know, indicate without any question that it came from the Arava. A German team, for example, wor worked on copper from Delphi and Olympia from the 10th century BC. It's all from the Arava no team. We had a project with the, muse the Israel Museum on Egyptian artifacts from the 21st dynasty, which is exactly the time of the early days of David, 1010 BC, something like that. All of the artifacts, it's like four, but very typical, Timna copper. There is another team working on metals from Lebanon, the Araba. Um, an Israeli scholar, Naama, probably you know from the mm -hmm. Hebrew University. Yeah. Naama has done a lot of research on that aspect from sites around Israel from that period, 11, 10 centuries BC. It's all from the Araba. We don't have copper from this period in Jerusalem. I think Elat might have some artifacts. They were not analyzed yet. I'm not sure if it's the 10th or 9th centuries. Uh, but Nama analyzed an artifact from Gilo, mm -hmm. very close to Jerusalem, Iron One, Araba. Mm. So it's all there. And again, for us, it's not a big surprise. Yeah, and I'm sure that in the future uh, we will find it also in Damascus and other places 
copper came in this period, there was a window in the history of the region that the Araba was the main supplier of copper for the Eastern right. Mediterranean and beyond. And this was because Cyprus was very, very weak back then and this was kind of a window of opportunity that was not uh, available again later. I, I do think that's interesting in terms of what you were saying, not to push back too much on your theory of the biblical hatred for the Edomites. No. Um, but the fact that Edom is so close and it's, it's a no-brainer, of course we're going to say, why are we even mentioning where the copper comes from? Everybody oh. knows where the copper comes from because it's, 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 it's so close to us. Then I'm going with that. This can be <laughs> two parallel uh, explanations. Yeah, they could. Yeah. It's, it's so obvious that it's Edomite because uh, it's so common. Every, there is no other option. You're actually. right, especially if it's going north to Greece and elsewhere like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm telling you, there was no other option in that particular time in 10th century rather than Edomite copper. So maybe it was so obvious that it's another way to go. Yeah. Very nice. So in, in Delphi, is that the furthest away so far that you have found this? I guess so. With, uh, in distance, yeah. it's, it's amazing. the farthest away. We, but we need to find a Phoenician shipwreck somewhere way west in the Mediterranean and have some uh, bronze items there, perhaps. Actually, there is a publication from, I think, last year or so from Sardinia. Mm -hmm. It's a bit controversial, the data. I'm talking about the real analytical data and the arguments between the people who are doing isotopes. Uh -huh. Also, the scientists argue between themselves sometimes <laughs> about interpretations. It's not, it's not always it. clear. But uh, the, uh, the scholar who led this project uh, strongly believed that his, his data support Timna Copper in Sardinia, which would be much farther than Greece during the 10th century BC. Um, we, we, we might see such, such evidence in the future as well. And uh, this can explain many things. I'm telling you, uh, just think about uh, you are. Um, you know, you you're many years talking to biblical archaeologists mm -hmm. engaged in the field and all of that kind of stuff. So think about all of the many, many articles and books talking about the economy of Judah in that time period and trying to understand what can be the source of wealth of this remote place of in Jerusalem. Right. The land of Jerusalem is much poorer than the Samaria, for example, so that's why Israel has to be much stronger all the time and things like that. But all of these calculations are based on uh, the environment, the immediate environment, the amount of gold, the amount of sheep, olive oil, wine, things like that. But if you factor in the economy of copper, which is invisible, it's not that if the Jerusalem engaged in this trade, you, you would find a lot of ingots all over the place. Right. Metal you can recycle. You, it never lasts in the archaeological site unless it was uh, hoarded or something unique. So it's kind of an um, invisible economic factor, which is huge, because if Jerusalem indeed benefited from this copper trade, it can very much explain the wealth of the city in this time period. And our assumption is that all of its economy was based on the local land and some connections with other entities is not the whole story. It's not the entire story. And definitely the copper was a major thing. The closest entity to the Edomite copper trade was Judah. Mm -hmm. It was Judah. If uh, they wanted to ship copper to Gaza, it had to come to go through the Beersheba Valley. So for me, even if David was a very small king or whatever, uh, he had to be familiar with this uh, trade and had to, at least for sure, he wanted to uh, benefit from it. It gives us a lot of uh, food for thought, and uh, uh, we should just remember that uh, the archaeology, the archaeological record is very fragmented, and it always tells us a very right. small part. That's of what the we often talk about: is that archaeology is always going to produce the most minimal um, account of what actually happened. Because absolutely, and also not in an equal way, uh, the sedentary and the nomads. We have to remember that the nomads will always be much, much less represented mm -hmm. and certain commodities copper would be much 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 less represented than, than uh, wine that had to be shipped with uh, jars right so we have to uh, think about the quality of the evidence and the different uh, you know the, the different <coughs> uh, type of evidence that we should expect for, for 
the, the, the life of this engineer. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for watching the interview of Professor Ben Yosef. Thank you very much to him for taking this time to be with us. I did want to, again, give a plug to our magazine. This is a magazine, Let the Stone Speak. It's similar content to what you see on the podcast, but it's in printed form. Uh, that's uh, different articles that are really going to help you make sense in a, in a different medium. Um, the significance of archaeological discoveries coming out of Israel during the time period of the Bible. Our latest issue is called Finding the Hittites. This is available to you by going to our website, armstronginstitute.org, and scrolling down to until you find a place where you can uh, request the magazine. And that'll give you a free subscription of, of three magazines, and then you can renew for the next year. Uh, this is a magazine that's always going to be for free. Uh, for you so there's no hidden cost obligations or follow-ups. Um, all you need to do is simply renew every single year. This is a magazine that comes out six times per year. We're actually going to have a, a really big magazine for the next one. It's going to cover the, the history of uh, the kingdoms of David and Solomon. So there will be a segment about Timna in the magazine, but it's going to be more comprehensive, about 80 pages of the very latest archaeological discovery that backs up and supports the narrative in the Bible of, of the kingdom of David and Solomon. And so you want to sign up for that now to make sure that you're on the mailing list to get that magazine when it comes out in another month or so. So again, the website's armstronginstitute.org. You can also just write an email to letters at armstronginstitute.org, requesting the magazine, putting your address in there. Wherever you are in the world, we'll make sure that you get a copy.